0: Because it's not a matter of my liberation it's also a matter of yours and if you're working if we're working together it's not because we're going to do something for the poor black people we're going to do something for each other to save this really rather frightening world whatever our differences we are fellow americans and please believe me when i say no association has ever meant more to me than that i'm van jones and this is uncommon ground I grew up in a small town in Jackson, Tennessee. And when I grew up, it was totally normal for people to have friends who were politically different from them. My best friend in high school was a guy named Kenny Hartley. White guy, conservative guy, loved Ronald Reagan. I hated Ronald Reagan. And you know we just would debate and argue all the time, but we were friends. We were such good friends because we both cared about politics. And just the fact that we were two high school kids who cared about politics, that was more important to us than, you know, that one guy loved Jesse Jackson the other guy loved Ronald Reagan. I miss that. I really miss that. I miss that feeling that you could debate and disagree without distrusting and without disrespecting and that we could talk to each other and not just about each other. And part of the point of the Uncommon Ground podcast is we really want to bring that back. And I'm happy that we have a chance to do that on this episode because I still have friends who vote differently and think differently than I do. And one of those friends is Meghan McCain. Now, Meghan McCain doesn't need any introduction. You know, she's from a globally famous family, uh, multiple generations of public service. But, you know, she's somebody who I have found once we get away from the TV cameras, once we get away from the spotlight, once we get away from all the public controversy, is just one of the most solid, loyal friends you're ever going to have. And we found a way to stay in each other's lives despite the fact that we're not in the same political party. And you know, you probably uh, have some people in your life like that as well. Uh, I hope you do. You know, so many of us, and you know, we've just lost so many friends and family members to politics. You got people you went to high school with, you just have to block them on your Facebook page because the stuff they're posting just gets you so upset you can't handle it. But I still hope that you have a few people in your life who you've been able to to stay close to. And I want you to have uh, some insight into how Megan and I do our friendship. She's an author. She's a columnist. She was on The View from 2017 to 2021, one of the biggest you know, shows on television. She was sometimes a lone conservative voice during that whole period. So, you know, she was really a part of shaping the national conversation during a time when the national conversation was highly consequential, the Trump years. You know, through that time, she became a mom, all this stuff, and took a lot of heat from the left and the right. And I took a lot of heat from the left and the right as well during that time. So we wound up becoming good friends. And I want to... Bring you into that relationship a little bit, pull the curtains back a little bit and bring you into how Meghan McCain and I do our friendship, hopefully to inspire you and encourage you to to do friendship yourself across whatever lines exist in your world.
2: Holistically, I think we just need to start doing more social things together. And I think there needs to be more like congressional retreats and caucuses and things that are, you know, you can't, it's hard to hate someone when you know them. I have found.
0: There's a couple things that come up in this conversation, though, that I think are really fascinating. One of them is Megan talks about not only how she makes friends across party lines, but also why she does it. I think her mindset on that is very interesting. She also talks about how dismayed and heartbroken she was to discover that one of her hardcore fans, somebody who was really excited about Megan McCain, became so radicalized and so disaffected over the course of the Trump years that this person actually was a part of the insurrection in the Capitol and lost her life during the insurrection. And Meghan McCain reflects on that. And then lastly, she also talks about how she thinks Republicans can revive and revitalize the best parts of their party. And whatever party you're in, reviving the best in your party is really key. It's gotta be job one, mission number one for everybody. And Megan's got some pretty neat ideas that I I want you to be aware of. You don't have to agree with Megan McCain. You don't have to agree with me. It's not about disagreement. Disagreement is is okay. Uh, In a democracy, you're supposed to disagree. That's the whole point of a democracy. Dictatorship, you cannot disagree. Dictatorship, you have to agree. Democracy, you get to disagree, that's called freedom. The problem is when you disagree on everything, if you disagree on everything, you're not going to have a country. You have to be as passionate about finding the points of agreement as the points of disagreement. And that's how you make progress going forward. And I hope you can hear a little bit of hope for progress in my conversation with Megan McCain when we get back.
3: Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
0: Uh, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. We use your, your father's voice in uh, every podcast. The actual the introduction for uh, this show has clips from people I admire, like James Baldwin and John Lewis and also your dad. And look, I just, I just, I just want to have a conversation. You know, we've been in politics for a long time, both of us. Uh, we both um, have some independence from the mainstreams of our party. I want to just want to talk about what we can do. Like how, you know, how can we start to try to bring folks together? Before we do that though, I just wanted to just talk a little bit about your dad. I mean, you've been in a kind of a public process of of grieving and honoring. I thought your speech at his funeral was one of the most powerful speeches in this century about politics and about principles. Um Is it getting any better? Is it getting any easier? Have you been able to integrate it? I mean, how, where are you in your process with that?
2: Well, first of all, thank you for saying that about my eulogy. Um, He helped me sort of mold it before he died, which is interesting. Uh And something is very Uh unique. Yeah. And he has the last thing he said to me um, when I said, what, how am I supposed to do this? He said, give them hell which I always, I think is like a funny thing to say to your daughter before she's gonna give your eulogy. But I'm, it's the most, it's the thing I'm most proud of ever doing. There's nothing I'll ever do that compares. My grief process is, um, you know, grief is tricky. It's such a tricky animal. And I know you've experienced grief with the loss of your mother as well. And mm-hmm. I, in the beginning, I was just an absolute feral animal. I was not attached to my emotions. I was so angry. I was so upset. Small things would set me off crying, small things have set me off, like laughing, small things would make me angry. And my emotions were much more exaggerated. And I think it's because I was just dealing with so much and dealing with it publicly and then working on television. And, you know, that already you have heightened, um, sort of like just senses in general, if you do live television, um, mm. I thought I was doing really good and I am, I've made a lot of progress and I'm always open about the fact that I've had Really intense grief counseling. I went on medication. I did everything you should do, at least in my impression. I meditate. Um, you know, took time off. I took bereavement leave um, before I went back to work. And I, I'm the waves are much um, calmer now in the sense that like I don't wake up every day crying and missing him. But his the anniversary of his death this year. I was at the beach in North Carolina, and I was just like a basket case all day. I was so upset. I thought I'd be fine. And then I almost felt like in that moment, because I hadn't chosen to do anything to honor him, it was almost like the universe or karma being like, you think you're going to get away with ignoring this day? You're not. It's a process.
0: And, you know, you have had to grieve in public for for him. Uh, And then also, you know, I think for a certain vision of the conservative movement that he represented, and that seems to be in real steep decline now. And you had to do that in public. You were on TV practically every single day on The View. You know, what did you learn on The View as you're looking back on it now? It's a a finished chapter. And what did you learn about liberals and progressives? Because you were the only conservative on that show.
2: I was on The View for four years and it was the most, I hope, the most tumultuous four years of my life politically Mm -hmm. in the country and then personally, just there's so much that got into those four years. Obviously my dad died of brain cancer, I got married and had a baby. The insurrection happened. Like, it's just so much in a period mm-hmm. of time to even process. The view brought out the best in me and the worst in me, and I find that it brings out the best of everyone and the worst of everyone. Like, it's a mm-hmm. it's a very intense show for that yeah. reason. Um, mm-hmm. I couldn't do it anymore. I I mm-hmm. was mentally, emotionally, and spiritually tapped out. Um, I talk about in my memoir, a lot of it had to do when I came back from maternity leave. And there were like three big markers where I was like, I can't do this anymore. And, mm-hmm. you know, you came on The View to do, uh, to promote a documentary we had worked on together about bringing the country together. And it basically mm-hmm. turned into, you know, you're my friend. We worked on a project together and it turned into something that I was very humiliated that I felt like mm-hmm. I had brought my friend on, which I thought was a, a safe and respectful space And it was horrible. It's one of the worst things I ever experienced on air. And I've experienced a lot of things on air that aren't amazing. And I felt like it was also adding to what's wrong with media and America. So there's like three big things that happened on The View. Donald Trump Jr. coming on um, and just screaming at us. And then me being like so emotionally raw and like not being able to handle being in front of Donald Trump Jr. The interview with you. And then an experience I had when I came back after maternity leave with Joy. And I just thought that there's got to be more to life. There's got to be different avenues to bring people together. And I need to also like live in the spirit of my dad and I'm not doing it here.
0: You know, I, uh, uh, it was a big moment for me as well. You know, it was ironic that here we are two well-known, uh, you're well-known conservative, well-known progressive. I thought, geez, you know, if you and I get together and, you know, add some love and light to a documentary that's talking about people trying you know, who are that different, trying to find some common ground. That would be a a good way to spend an afternoon. And, um, you know, it it, um, it didn't turn out that way in terms of, you know, some of your co-hosts deciding to use that as a moment to take me to task for my transgressions of working with conservatives on criminal justice issues, which I worked on for 30 years. And then to watch the social media response where only the takedown was even shown. People never heard my response. They never heard my answer. Now, before we get back to my conversation with Megan, I want you to hear this exchange that we're talking about from the view. So that way you're going to know what we're actually talking about. I'm going to play the full exchange so you can hear what Megan's co-host said to me and what I said back to her. That way you've got the whole context.
4: Now, now, Van, you do spend a lot of time, uh, you know, threading the middle and trying to, to unite people, but uh, there are those who really accuse you of being a political opportunist, a chameleon, so to speak, who provided a racial cover for former disgraced, twice impeached President Trump. You said this, and I quote, Donald Trump, and I get beat up by liberals every time I say this, but I'm going to keep saying it. He has done good stuff for the black community, Opportunity Zone stuff, black college stuff. There's a side to Donald Trump that I think he does not get enough credit for. Yet, just recently, you cried uh, on CNN when Joe Biden was elected the forty-sixth president, um, and you said it's easier to be a parent now. Character matters now. Truth matters. You even mentioned George Floyd and said a lot of people felt they couldn't breathe. People in the black community don't trust you anymore. Mm-hmm. What, what is your
1: response?
0: Uh, oh, well, I, a, I, don't, I don't think that, that that's true. If you, the entire quote I said was that, that Trump has done a lot of good stuff he doesn't get credit for. And then I went on to say the reason I get credit for it is because he's done all this horrific stuff, said all this horrific stuff, and it completely erases what he's done. But what happens is social media will take the clip, but they won't show the full context. And so what what I will say is this, my entire life has been about bringing people together to solve tough problems for people at the very bottom who don't have anything. I've spent 25 years fighting against the prison system. Uh, I have helped to close five abusive prisons. And by working with Republicans at the local, state, and federal level—and yes, including the Trump administration—I have helped to pass 18 bipartisan bills. We got 14,000 people out of the federal prison system with the First Step Act, and more to come. We got 70,000 human beings who were suffering in jails and prisons under COVID released under Compassionate Release, working with Republicans and Democrats. Uh, You—you—if you know, Black Lives Matter, math matters too. 80% of Black folks are locked up in states that are run in part or whole by Republicans, red states and and purple states. So when you can pass a law as my team has done in a Louisiana, in a Georgia, in a California, Michigan, red states, blue states, and purple states to get people home, the people behind bars are not sitting up here worried, saying, get me out of prison, Van. or whatever you do, don't talk to a Republican. They say, get me out of prison. And I am proud of the fact that my team at the Reform Alliance, Dream Corps, and Cut 50 have been able to work with anybody to get folks home. At a certain point, we got to stop focusing on rhetoric and look at results. People may not like everything I have said on television. But I try to be balanced, but look at what I've done. Who among my critics have been able to get people together to help folks at the bottom? When we fight like this about everything, and you can't give anybody even a little bit of credit for anything, who hurts? It's not the politicians. It's not the pundits. It's regular folks who don't have anything, people who can't vote because they're in jail. We have to put their interests first. I'm never going to apologize for putting the interests of people at the bottom first. People need champions. Whoever's in that White House, i got a responsibility to go in there and advocate and try to get people home out of prison. I'm going to keep doing it, whoever's in that White House. I do recognize, and I, you know, I had to reflect on it, you know, that there, there are people who feel differently, and who, who, who's a, here's an African American guy with a big platform. What's he doing palling around with Jared Kushner, with Ivanka Trump, with, with Donald Trump on the issues that I'm committed to? And I think that there are legitimate questions and concerns. I just think they could be handled better in terms of how you bring them to somebody. But again, we're, we're, we're all, all grown up here.
2: I have a very serious, deep, intense. Anger and and animosity towards anyone in the Trump family. I one hundred percent support and understand why you worked with the administration. Because at the end of the day, the people who are impacted, the people whose lives you got out of jail who are wrongfully incarcerated, there's a method to the madness. They they were released. Their lives are changed. I have I know this shocks people, but I have lot of friends on the left. My dad's like best friend in the entire world is Joe Lieberman and is, Mm -hmm. and I would literally probably be in like a mental institution if it weren't for him and his Mm -hmm. wife Hadassah and their friendship and their love and like literal support in every way you can support someone after my dad died. So like politics is about connections and friendship and love in a lot of ways too. At least that's always been my experience. And I really am so heartbroken at where where the country is at right now, and I don't Mm-mm. think it's what people want.
0: You know, it, it does bring me to the point, you know, you mentioned Lieberman, and, and we can point to other great examples. And at the same time, somehow the establishment, and I consider myself, you know, relatively independent, but I'm a part of the establishment. I, I work for Obama, as you pointed out. I, I'm on CNN. So I think, I think the establishment, we did, we let the country down in some very profound way, obviously, because look at the reaction. You have a, uh, in the Democratic Party, we have the Bernie Sanders rebellion um, that got, you know, tens of millions of votes and is now represented as, you know, quite well by ALC, who you mentioned, and others. And look at the, on the Republican side, you have the, the Trump rebellion, which, you know, has, you know, actually got all the way to the White House and may get back in there. So what do you think, looking back, what did the establishment get wrong? I mean, something is off kilter and it's not good enough, I think, just for us to criticize the critics. How do we get here?
2: I think that there's a whole faction of the American population that has been abandoned and neglected and taken for granted and honestly been told a bunch of lies for a really long time. And I really tried to understand Trump when he got elected. And I really try to understand AOC and Bernie Sanders because, first of all, it's my job. And second of all, I I want to understand this, these factions that are growing and thriving and getting stronger in the country. And I think that, you know, you look at the Tea Party movement and people that were just so angry with the spending in Washington, D.C., that they, you know, got together and had this whole wave of people who were elected into Congress. And I think when you go to Appalachia, which I have also been to as well, or you go to, like, areas of Arizona, which, you know, have in a lot of ways, you know, been overcome by poverty and drugs as well and meth and things like that and opioids, you know, people don't have a lot. They don't believe in the American dream anymore. They don't believe that Mm. their children are going to have a better future than the generation before. And I think sometimes it's just easier to believe someone who will listen to you and not treat you like you are. One of the forgottens of society that has no no place or value and I think with mm-hmm. Trump it happened with you know obviously people in the Rust Belt and I think with people like AOC and Bernie Sanders it's happening with um, and this is just generalizing but you know mm. people of color uh, you know people who are living in urban more urban areas statistically and these policies haven't been working and instead of thinking you know hey I, I should I should go to the right they think socialism will be the answer. I think the people that are the leaders of these factions are really brilliant orators and really brilliant at presenting their case. I disagree with all of it, and I think all of it's dangerous. Let me put it this way. This is the best way I can explain this. Ashley Babbitt, who was shot at the insurrection in the Capitol. So when she was shot... People sent me, she had tweeted me a bunch of times and actually like written about me, I believe on her blog, but that may be inaccurate. But she had, she was like a Megan McCain fan, which mm. I am a, I am a, you know, center right, like I'm conservative, but I'm, you know, for paid family leave and prison reform. And, you know, I, I have very nuanced beliefs that, and Trump people hate me. How do you go from being a Meghan McCain fan two years ago to thinking there's no other option in your life but to storm the Capitol, that there's nothing else that can save you in America? How does that happen? How are you radicalized in such a short period of time? And I think that that her case in particular, she had like a pool cleaning business that went under in California. What happens to a person like this that they're radicalized? And that's what I'm most curious about and Mm -hmm. most fearful of.
4: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the potential for radicalization is really high. And I also feel that it's the hypocrisy of both parties that has created this context. The Republican Party and the Democratic Party have key principles that we've wandered away from. Um, as a Democrat, we're supposed to be the party of the working person, the the struggler, and the striver who's you know trying to rise up in the system. But we've gotten to the point now. If if you if you aren't eating kale <laughs> and doing yoga, you may not fit in this party. I mean, there's a certain level of coastal elitism. That you, if you haven't gone to college, if you don't know all the right words, if you don't know all the right lingo, if you don't have the right kind of lifestyle, if you don't, you know, if you aren't using the right, you know, vegan or organic products, you may just get embarrassed among progressives. You know, there's some, uh, I was talking to some folks who are working at the grassroots level and they're saying that, you know, at the, you know, black folks, we often say, hey, king, hey, queen. And, you know, you're trying to get people to come out and vote. You're trying to engage with people and you have these kids coming off the campus say, oh, well, that's sexist. You can't say that. Well, now you're telling somebody who runs a barbershop or somebody who's been in community for 30 years that they're wrong and people are getting tired of being told they're wrong. So there's a certain amount of elitism that I think we don't manage very well in terms of the Democratic Party I think the Republican Party. This is the party of Lincoln. It started off as a radical anti-slavery party. It's a party of individual rights and individual dignity. And yet, what the hell is Steve Bannon doing here? You know what I mean? Who's <laughs> like all about like demonization and groupthink and stuff like that. And so when you when you know you have a Republican party that's so far off the rails that a Steve Bannon feels perfectly comfortable, um and white nationalists feel perfectly comfortable and there seems to be no way to challenge him effectively, now you have two parties that they don't stand for what they're supposed to stand for.
2: I, I agree with all of that. And, you know, I think Republicans have played really have made a deal with the devil, um, that, you know, we can traffic in racism and anti Semitism and Things that are, you know, when I was growing up as, you know, the most horrible, egregious, disgusting things anyone could ever do, any normal, rational person. And I think that they decided to make this deal with Trump and all that comes with him. And we're seeing the ramifications. The ramifications are white college-educated women and people of color and, you know, people that make... I believe it's uh, over $100,000 a year. Like the demographics on it, there's a lot of really important demographics that the Republican Party is losing and losing fast. But then you see on the other side with Democrats like looking like they just, there's such a like outward disdain I see towards um, people in red states in the middle of the country who make under $100,000 a year and maybe even like less than $50,000 a year or like working on minimum wage. And it's a recipe for evil and disaster, which is why I think we're in the place that we're in you know, I could never get on board with President Trump. I never voted for him. Um, I actually didn't. I wrote in. i have like, just going to write in, apparently, for forever. Um, and, you know, I feel like I was, like, a Republican that Democrats were comfortable with for a long time because of my dad and because, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not radical on some things. And then as the Trump years went on, I was sort of painted out to be more and more extreme, which I felt mm-hmm. like was sometimes fair and sometimes wasn't fair. But I always said in meetings when you demonize me, you're demonizing a lot of women in the country who agree with me. And if you treat me like I'm stupid and you taught me a little girl and you tell me that I need to behave, women see that and they see these signals and they see that you disrespect them and you hold no value. And that will have ramifications. And I think it's interesting, even on the show that like, I haven't been replaced yet. I have given a list of like, five really incredible women that have not tested that I think would be amazing. And there's this weird dance networks are doing right now that aren't Fox where the, you cannot be any other kind of Republican except basically like a Lincoln Project Republican because anything other than that is unacceptable. And to me, that's dangerous because you're talking about 50% of the country. And I just think well, the more we pretend like this doesn't exist, it, it's going to exist and it's still there. And the more the more dangerous I think things will get.
0: Look, I agree with you in that 100%. Um, I think that this idea of sometimes progressives, we wind up feeding what we're fighting without knowing it. Like, for instance, there's a reason that Black people don't, in general, vote for Republicans. It has nothing to do with policy. If we got to be honest, Black people are very conservative on the whole. I mean, if you think about the African-American community, what our institutions are about, the Black church and hip-hop, are our two biggest institutions. People on hip hop, they're not rapping about staying poor. They're rapping about, you know, private playing Republican stuff. You know what I mean? Traditionally, like they're, they're, they're wealth, <laughs> aspiration. I mean, you know, uh, the black church is, you know, very traditional in terms of what they're saying from the pulpit, even in terms of gender relationships. But those black preachers will fill up buses of buses of voters and go vote for a party that is opposite of them because it seems like republicans don't like us even if if you're an african american even if you might agree with some of the republican policies on paper how you treat me and and how you talk about me when i'm watching fox news when i'm listening to right wing radio when the only time you talk about black communities is to say something negative always the assumption being that our communities are dysfunctional and violent and on welfare whatever you'd never talk about the black kids who are going to you know filling up all these black colleges and are doing an amazing you know job and you you leave me with the impression that you don't like me. You don't see me. You don't respect me. So even if I agree with your policies, I'm not going to vote for you. Well, similarly, on the left, you can say, well, listen, you know, we've got all these great policies that would help all these working class white folks, you know, where family leave or whatever it is. Yeah, but every time we say straight white male, we seem to mean the devil. Every time we say red state voter, we seem to mean somebody who's stupid. So maybe some of the policies would benefit people who vote for Republicans, but people don't just vote on policy. They vote on a sense of their own human dignity. And it's very hard to vote for a party that you feel doesn't respect you.
2: I think when you see things like Charlottesville and find people on both sides, there are certain moments in history and certain moments culturally that happen that you can't explain, you can't, and I think they have real impact. And I imagine if you are a black woman with a black son and you see that, That you're like, no matter what the Republican Party stands for economically, there has to be a baseline thing where you're like, well, I can't vote for a racist. And I don't think Republicans are racist, but I think if you have someone that virtue signals or signals and dog whistles, then I understand. And that's actually something I learned a lot more about working at The View. That's one of the more positive things I I learned working there. Um, I really got a really upfront, intense perspective on what it is like for people of color in this country, the experience, because there's just a lot of people mm-hmm. of color that work at the view on and off camera. And I would see the pain and visceral emotional reactions to, I remember specifically when um, president Trump said about Haiti, that they were like shithole countries and there's a makeup artist that works on the view who is, who is Haitian mm. and she was just very emotional and very upset. And she ended up wearing a t-shirt that said Haiti on it the next day or the, the day after. And these things have ramifications.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think it's for me, you know, I do think it's important. Listen, let's vote against each other. We don't have to agree on stuff, but we, we wind up hating each other. And I think we wind up beating what we're fighting on the left in ways that we aren't even aware of. You know, when we say stuff like these idiots from the red states keep voting against their economic self-interest. Well, hold on a second. You know, the white people who vote against their economic self-interest the most rich white liberals that vote for higher taxes. Nobody's calling them stupid. You say, oh, well, they have great values. They believe in their values more than the money. Well, maybe that poor working class white guy has values. He values more than money. Maybe that working class white guy says, I value independence and liberty. I don't want you stealing money from rich people and bribing me to be dependent on the government. If my kid makes a mistake, I don't want the government bailing them out. If they're dumb enough to get pregnant and get on drugs, don't bail them out. Make them learn a tough lesson. Those are values that people have. Doesn't mean you're right or wrong, but you got to respect it. You can't come in with the assumption that you know better.
2: Yeah, I found, um, you know, just working in media, especially the last four years, you can't find anything redeemable about any Republican. And you also don't know any. That was one of my biggest criticisms of many places I've worked, is that you have to have more than one Republican, which is me, on staff. The sins of President Trump are not, you can't hold every Republican responsible for everything he's done because it's not fair. But I felt like at a certain point it was just more convenient to lump everyone into the Trump category, no matter what happens, because if you don't just reject being a Republican, then you're a racist, horrible psycho.
0: Right. Well, I want to move to some possible solutions. I don't know if any of them will work, but one of the things is that I do think that within both parties, we need a more intentional effort to stand up for the best in our parties. If you were trying to think through a revival agenda or a revival process for the Republican Party. I mean, how would you begin to think about pulling together the best of the conservatives?
2: Um, I have found the main issue that I think there is a lot of synergy on the left and the right really is paid family leave Mm -hmm. and anything having to do with women returning to the workforce after having babies. And I think that for me, it has been very confusing going through what I went through physically and emotionally when I, after I had my daughter, um, seeing just how shitty America is in the scheme of the globe, Saudi Arabia has a better paid family leave plan than the United States of America is. I started thinking Mm -hmm. about women working minimum wage jobs, women who aren't getting, you know, get two weeks or four weeks, something that's just like, you know, cruel and inhumane. And I have found in a lot of spaces right now, conservatives really sort of changing their minds a lot about it, because I think, again, mm-hmm. the argument many conservatives have for why America's going to hell is the breakdown of the family. Well, if All you're right. talking about the start of the breakdown of the family, it starts with mothers not having the time to bond and heal with their children. And then I think you can make an argument that everything ricochets from there. So we should all want to support the family and support children and support mothers. As much as I don't like Ivanka Trump, I know that was a big issue for her as well. So if there's an issue that like you, me, Ivanka Trump and Bernie Sanders agree on, like (laughs) why won't we get this done? And then holistically, I think we just need to start doing more social things together. And I think there needs to be more like congressional retreats and caucuses and things that are, you know, you can't, it's hard to hate someone when you know them. I
0: have found. Yeah. I always I, I say, I've never met a single person I can't find one thing in common with, and I've never met a single person I can't find one thing I like about them. Um, you know, let me just throw out some issues, just a few, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. But I wonder, you are one of the few conservatives that, you know, you really had to deal with the liberal causes up front every day. You're probably as well-versed in some of the progressive view of progressive ideas as most progressives are. You know, on an issue like climate, for instance, do you see any common ground? Is there any slice or sliver?
2: I always say that if if climate change, if people just started talking to Republicans about conservation and and mm-hmm. just said that instead of climate change, like some of it is just language because I obviously believe in climate change. I don't think that it is, um, you know, I don't think we're an Armageddon and I'm going to die tomorrow from like a, you know, tidal wave. But I think when you start talking, at least for me, to Republicans about wanting the Yellowstone National Park to continue to thrive, talking about how Lake Powell's uh, lake is is really depleted right now. Like you can literally see like markers. I used to, when my summers growing up, we used to vacation there on houseboats and jet skis. It's very fun. But the lake is like not going to exist soon if, mm-hmm. if, if things continue on the path if they are the Grand Canyon, you see many issues happening with, you know, the Colorado River and um, different kinds of birds and plants and animals in the Grand Canyon. I think if you just talk about conservation and mm-hmm. like Teddy Roosevelt conservation instead of climate change, you get way further with people on the right.
0: What, what about what about abortion? What about gun rights, gun safety? I mean, just anything at all because people got to people got to talk about this stuff and we're just obviously doing such a bad job of it i
2: think with gun rights people need to understand at least on the left that the second amendment's not going anywhere and for many people that grow up in like gun culture it's a really big part of their life when i was in high school the guy who i uh carpooled me who picked me up to carpool had a shotgun and a rack in the back of his car Mm -hmm. um and it was not unusual it was not weird um I think that when I, I think starting with background checks, um, any reasonable, rational person, the last person I ever want is for a crazy person to have access to a weapon. I didn't have a problem with um, closing the gun show loopholes either. Again, I think, I, don't, I think if you're a reasonable person and you want to buy a whatever Smith and Wesson rifle or whatever, I don't think that people, normal people, at least in my life, have a problem with waiting an extra day or two to make sure that a psycho lunatic doesn't shoot up a school. I don't have, I never have a problem talking about gun rights and the Second Amendment with people as long as they're not hysterical on either side.
0: Uh, what about abortion? Th- that was tough.
2: Um, that one is tougher, you know, in the same way that I think shout your abortion is gross. I also think that shaming people for having abortions is gross as well. I would just implore more respect all the way around. I don't try and convince people and I don't want to be convinced on that issue, but I just want to have more respectful mm-hmm. dialogue I just like tolerance and respect on both sides mm-hmm. that may sound saccharine mm-hmm. but
0: well look I mean it, civility is key to civilization so I just think that it's when we disagree and passionately disagree that the passion needs to be there but we also need to have the the, the civility of the container we have to on these really tough issues we have to remind each other and that's why it's, it's your dad's quote, Um, that the association of being Americans is the most important association. You have to hang on to the common ground, especially when when you have these kind of battleground issues. You know, this stuff really matters, like how we deal with difference, how we deal with disagreement. It's not the disagreement, it's the disrespect. I don't mind disagreement. I do mind disrespect.
2: I um, have had this experience in my life where I have prejudged people on their politics beforehand and been cruel and very, you know, I don't know, like tough in my analysis of them and had some of the, there's one person in particular who has turned out to be like crazily one of my closest friends and the biggest source Mm -hmm. of support, you know who she is, she won't mind, Palsy Gabbard, who, um, Mm -hmm. I remember saying something really nasty about her on The View and, Mm -hmm. um, getting a lot of different people saying, you need to meet her because you, you don't understand her perspective. She has this like aloha peace perspective on the world. And, Um, I ended up, she asked me to go to lunch after I was, she came on The View and I went to lunch with her and we ended up having so much in common. Like, Mm -hmm. and no one would believe that because she's like, Miss Aloha, no makeup. Like I want everything like peace and love and very like, you know, non-interventionist, isolationist, whatever. Um, And literally like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I would have survived COVID without her friendship. Like she Mm -hmm. has become such a source of support and love. And we're both so controversial and having this person in the world that bonds over being a controversial woman. And mm-hmm. I would never have had that if I only would have people in my life that I agree with. I don't, there's no, I, her friendship is so much more important to me than, than politics. Mm-hmm.
0: That's the thing is like, you have to, I, I think, you know, having a good neighbor, you don't have to agree with them, but you need to understand where they're coming from. If you disagree with somebody, but you understand where they're coming from, you can still have a neighborhood. If you disagree with somebody and you don't even understand where the hell they're coming from, it's, you know, becomes very, very challenging.
2: I I totally agree. I hope, I think the vast majority of normal Americans agree. Um, I think it's easier to get in like media spin cycles because yeah. you get more clicks and you get more attention and all the things that I think are destroying the country. Um, mm-hmm. But my life would be a very sad, joyless place if I only, if the only people I loved and let into my life and like socialized with and, you know, shared communities with and worshiped with or people I agreed with politically, and that's well, how I'm, I'm, I choose to live my life, and yeah. that's how I want my child to live her life.
0: Well, I am a beneficiary of that approach because uh, I get to be your friend, and we don't have to agree on much, but I, I think we admire each other and respect each other, and we find find ways to help each other personally. You know, I'm having a bad day. You're having a bad day. We, you know, we're there for each other, and um, more of that needs to happen, but as a beneficiary of your policy, I approve it, <laughs> and um, let's just stay together I hope to have you back soon And I just appreciate everything you, that you stand for And, and much love to your, to your family Appreciate you Bye. Bye We see the beauty of hope That spirit is so beautiful
1: Those who become American citizens Love this country even more And that's why the Statue of Liberty Lifts her lamp To welcome them to the Golden Door
0: Man, I like talking to Megan McCain. Um, I just think that she's one of these rare people in American life, and American politics that, you know, she's just so relatable. You can talk about her family or her kids or, you know, everything that's going on. She also has a, I think, very penetrating view of where we are. I think a couple of things. One, no matter who you are, it is very easy now to underestimate how big the community is of people who, don't agree with you, who don't see it the same way. If you're a Republican and you are consuming a lot of conservative media, a lot of conservative podcasts, first of all, thank you for adding this one to your overall diet. Hopefully it'll give you something you aren't getting elsewhere. But you might just think that all the progressives are, are crazy, but you also might think there's very few of us. And same, I think, for those of us who might be progressive. It's a very, very large country. And there are a huge number of people who are living completely different lives in terms of what they do every day, what they read, watch and listen to how they were raised, how they pray and how they vote and those people are incredibly valuable to the country. They are incredibly wise about some things. They see some stuff that we don't see every day and they're as scared of you as you are of them. That's the thing I don't think people understand is that Whatever side of this fight you're on, the people you're fighting are as afraid of you as you are of them. Uh, If you are a progressive, you will look at what the Republicans are doing and say, look, they've got all this power, disproportionate power, perhaps. They've got so much representation in the Senate. Um, We barely can beat them as Democrats in the presidential election because of the Electoral College. They have a massive advantage now in the Supreme Court. They have a bunch of governorships. You start to look at this incredible power block in politics of the Republicans. And you think, what are they going to do? I'm scared of these, these people. And you see them moving on voting rights in a way that's alarming and other stuff. And you're just terrified. And if you're a progressive, you may not believe that that super powerful group is also terrified of you. Because if you're on the conservative side, you say, sure, we might have some political power. But look at Hollywood and how almost every film now, how almost everything on television has a progressive point of view. We don't have a voice in that. Look at the campuses. Look at the academy. Even Silicon Valley, you know, that deep platformed a sitting Republican president, Donald Trump, in an unprecedented way. And he still can't get back on Twitter. You know, look at the changing demographics of the country. And so they feel that we progressives have a lot of power. And you know, between Black Lives Matter, these other groups, that they're the ones that are being pushed. They're the ones that are being challenged. They're the ones that are being disrespected. They're the ones that are being misunderstood. And I think the important thing to remember is you have a double standoff now, where both sides feel abused, both sides can point to the other side's power, both sides can fear the other side's power, and neither side has to listen. And that's what we're trying to correct with this podcast, and that's why my friendships that I have with people who are conservatives, whether you're talking about a Megan McCain or an Ivanka Trump, who, by the way, they don't even get along with each other, which I didn't fully take on board. I get along with both of them and, and a bunch of other people. I do that because I don't want to become what I'm fighting. I don't want to become the intolerant perspective that I'm fighting. I don't want to become the arrogant, dismissive, callous force that I'm fighting. And the only way I can not become what I'm fighting is to reach out even when it's hard. The only way I can not become what I'm fighting and not feed what I'm fighting is to reach out even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. Megan McCain has a similar approach. And I think probably many of you see the appeal of that and maybe even practicing that in your own lives, or you used to. I think it's time for us to try to get back to that. We don't have to agree on everything. But I do believe that we're all better off when you can still make the phone call. That's my thing. Can you still make the phone call? Maybe you are you got some strained relationships in your family. Maybe you've got some strained relationships at work. But can you at least make the call when it matters? That's what we're starting to lose. We're starting to get to a place where even in emergencies, like... I don't know, a pandemic, <laughs> we may not even have enough left in the tank, enough goodwill, enough understanding to make the phone call. Let's start working on restoring that in this country. And I'm very, very glad that with Megan McCain, I can always make the call. This is Van Jones. Thank you for spending time with us on Uncommon Ground. See you next time. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Sundu Sasan, and Adesawa Agbunile. Our managing producers are Lauren D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for the show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Moraes, and Chantel Muentes. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Taylor Williamson, Seven McDonald, Drew Schwindemann, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarron, Joe McMillan, Steph Walkneen, Vanessa Rebert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Lewey, and Chris Jackman. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.
4: Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front-row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them.